Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Daniel Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, The Cursed, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. How you doing? This is Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiske talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. This is Joel Gustin, Electric Frankenstein, Big Faith, Young Dead, etc., etc. You are listening to Mars Attacks. Victor, and we have a very special interview with the author and musician Joel Gostin. Uh, obviously, he's written several books, several mini books, uh, which relate to different interviews that he's done with members of the Misfits, uh, Killing Joke, Prong, and uh, as a result, what we're going to do is bring you music from these groups that um, that he's interviewed and um very interesting guy um had a lot of really cool stuff that we talked about listening back and editing the interview itself really had a lot of fun listening back and uh picking up on things that um that we'd talked about initially and uh it was just pretty cool you know because you script things you have certain questions in a certain direction that you want to go in and sometimes different uh you know uh, opportunities present themselves and you're able to veer off in a direction and ask the person that you're interviewing their opinions on you know members of bands or one a certain genre of music started and obviously uh, Joel has been writing about music for some time now and he's been he's been a journalist for some time now he'll mention it during the interview and um, and obviously being someone that's played in bands like Pigface and the Undead and Electric Frankenstein, and he has a connection to the Misfits as well, which we'll all get into in the interview. Uh, it's just real interesting, you know, getting his take on things because uh, you know um, we often read things that musicians say 
or certain people, certain hosts say. But we don't always get to talk to authors or producers or people at labels and things of that nature to get their opinions on things, to get those sides of things. And uh, he's going to allude to something that I'm working on that he's involved in that uh, that we're going to try and do that. You know, we're going to try and get opinions, and we have gotten opinions from a lot of very interesting people. I think you guys are going to be happy once you read and hear what we're doing, and we're slowly going to um, let names out. The first name that I mentioned was Dan Lorenzo from Hades Nonfiction and the Cursed, among other things. And the next name on the list, obviously, after this episode, is Joel Gostin. I'll officially put that up on MarsAttacksRadio.com and FusionSonica.com on Monday after this episode comes out. And uh, again, just keep going back to those two websites. Fusion Sonic is in Spanish, Mars Attacks Radio obviously in English, and uh, find out more information regarding what we're putting together. And uh, also want to remind you guys that you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. It usually goes up a few days after it's released on MarsAttacksRadio.com. If you can't wait to hear the episode, I would recommend going straight to Mars Attacks Radio and either listening to it directly from there uh, or downloading it from there. We're lucky from time to time that Blabbermouth does post... Uh, the press releases that we send out, and they usually have a link to listen to the site, or I'm sorry, to the interview right there on their site. Uh, If you're at work, listen to a part of the interview and want to listen to the rest when you get home or whatever, want to download it for your commute to or from work, just remember that you do have the ability to go to iTunes or go to MarsAttacksRadio.com and download it. Uh, Another interesting thing regarding Mars Attacks, the song (laughs) was actually the song that I used for roughly the first 50 episodes of the Mars Attacks radio show. If you're not familiar with the radio show, it airs Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays on MarkStriegelRadio.com, and uh, that is M-A-R-K-S-T-R-I-G-L.com, and it is on Stream A. Go to the homepage of MarsAttacksRadio.com and you'll find out the show times. Uh, things have been very busy lately due to all the interviews that I've been lining up, and there's a lot of great stuff that you guys are going to be hearing in the next few weeks. I guarantee that you guys will be happy with some of the people that we've interviewed. I had the pleasure of interviewing some people uh, in person while they've been on tour here in Spain, namely Jerry Garcia from Bonded by Blood and... Jeff Pollock from Lazarus AD. Great to talk to uh, both guys. Great to hang out with both bands, uh, especially Lazarus. And I don't want to put, you know, Bonded by Blood off to the side or whatever uh, because I had a great time with them. But the one thing that I do want to point out is that uh, if you hadn't heard previously, Lazarus AD had this big issue in England where absolutely everything that they had on their tour van was stolen they were on stage at the time so obviously their instruments weren't stolen uh their passports were in their pockets obviously that wasn't touched but uh you know it's a it's a shame that something like that happens and you know i had various posts on 
all of the sites that I'm involved with, with Talking Metal, with uh, Mars Attacks Radio, with Fusion Sonica, and with the VictorMRuez.com website. And, um, you know, I posted the information that their PR people had sent along, um, Natalie from Adrenaline PR. And, you know, being an American that's over here in Europe, I could understand, you know, what it would be like for me to be stranded, you know, without any money, uh, with having, you know, absolutely everything that I had, say, back at a hotel or, or in a car stolen, you know, it would be an absolute nightmare. So I wanted to make sure that those guys got as much help as possible. And uh, within the next few weeks, you will be able to hear both of those interviews. Um, Actually, I did two interviews with Jerry. Jerry was very cool because he was nice enough to do an interview with me in Spanish as well. So we repeated pretty much all the same questions, but did them in Spanish. It was very cool. The first person that I spoke to uh, from the U.S., from a famous or a known U.S. band uh, while they were over here in Spain and doing it in Spanish. It was actually pretty cool. At least, you know, I thought it was cool. And hopefully when you guys listen to that, you'll appreciate it as well. Uh, we're going to get into a song by Killing Joke right now. This is a song that I've been using for... Um, probably since the end of last year when I first heard the album, since I first heard the last Killing Joke album, I should say, as I'm choking here for a second. Uh, Anyway, um, their new album, Distant Aggression, is just absolutely awesome. If you haven't heard it, check it out. I mean, it's just a crushing album. And when I say crushing, or I'm sorry, Absolute Descent, is the name of the album. I'm getting Judas Priest and Killing Joke mixed up here. Uh, Anyway, Absolute Descent is the name of the album. And the album cover is cool because it has a cross with the cell phone uh, repeaters on it. And um, again, when I mean crushing, there's a song on here called, and let me look at my uh, playlist here, it is This World Hell which is one of the heaviest riffs that this band has ever released. It is really cool. Uh, The song that I'm going to play for you, though, is a song that I've been listening to a lot. And again, I've been using it since the end of last year to start off my Fusion Sonica podcast. And the name of the track is The Great Cull by Killing Joke. After playing this, we'll get into the interview with Joel, and then we'll come out of the interview with some more music before wrapping things up.
So, uh, right off the bat, the the first question. This is almost uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, what came first, Joel the musician or Joel the journalist? Uh, Joel the journalist, or or more specifically, Joel the ad hoc journalist who didn't know he was a journalist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've always been a writer, really, since okay. I was a kid. Uh, long story short. When I was very, very young, I had some speech issues. So I would tend to write more than I spoke. And around maybe the fifth grade, I got really into music and would just write, write, write about music. Not for public consumption, just writing fake news articles or what my fifth grade mind conceived as articles about music. So it was around that time I actually put together uh, my own music fanzine called uh, Joel Gostin's Rolling Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Before I knew there was a beer by the same name. And uh, basically that was really what you would expect a fifth grader to put together. I, I took what Jerry Miller was writing about in Metal Edge I kind of reworded it, didn't really know any better, um, and put this thing out. And it was actually a benefit for the student council at my elementary school. And huh. uh, it raised, I think, about $13. So I knew I was on to something at that point. I sold it for a quarter apiece. And it was like, you know, stuff on Guns N' Roses, Kiss, all that kind of stuff, which I was really into at that age and you know, still am for the most part. And around the same time, I started playing drums. So I kind of pursued both equally until right. it became you know, pretty obvious around 2000, 2001 that I would be a professional journalist and do music on the side, not the other way around. With regards to your journalism and things that you've authored, um, two of the things that stood out to me right off the bat were two of the first books that you wrote about. Two groups that I absolutely love and I think don't get enough coverage, especially uh, based on the effect that I think both bands have had with music over over the years. Um, and the, the books in question, there's one that you put together for the group Prong and another one for the Misfits. Right. Um, Tell us why you decided to write books about both of these bands. Uh, Well, they were both complete accidents, to be honest. Um, Since about 2005, I've been working on a book called Albums That Should Have Changed the World. Okay. uh, the, The short version of explaining that book is it's basically devoted to albums that I feel deserve a second listen. And it's a pretty eclectic list of albums. It goes from Aerosmith to bands like The Swans to uh, Throbbing Gristle and some industrial stuff. You know, so it's a pretty wild combination of bands. So I set out to interview people from those albums, obviously. And around 06, I started getting into online marketing. Uh, mainly because at that time I traveled and lived all over the country to the point where it just made 
better sense for me on a personal level to keep in touch with people that way. So once I ended up on MySpace and saw the potential there, I started posting these uh, excerpts, what I was working on. And, uh, you know, websites like Blabbermouth started running news bits about those excerpts and things like that. So it got to the point where I was getting like 3,500 hits a day on the MySpace page for these excerpts. And the most popular ones happened to be Prong and the Misfits. Hmm. So, you know, by that point in time, I decided to be uh, self-published. I had been negotiating with a major publisher for months at that point and was really uh, dissatisfied with where those negotiations were going. So I, I basically took my ball and went home in that respect and just had to do it all on my own. So I figured, okay, well, I've got a response here. I have a potential market here. Why don't I test the waters and put out um, these book chapters as actual, like what I would call mini books? You know, something that was, you know, 40 pages, 50 pages, 60 pages, sort of like a seven inch running up to an album, you know? Right. So I did the Misfits one just to see what it was like. I went through uh, a self publishing website for that. And the response was pretty immediate. You know, within a week of putting it up there, the only place I was really marketing it at that point was MySpace and Blabbermouth. And within a week, you know, Suicide Girls ran a feature in a book without any prompting by me. Uh, It hit, I think, number 48 on the bestsellers list at Lulu, which is the company I used. Uh, Revolver Magazine did a feature. You know, so really, like, right out of the gate, it was pretty intense, and that led to doing the prong one. I also did one on short, uh, a short run book on Black Sabbath, which led to From Satan to Sabbath, which is a much larger collection of interviews. I guess we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so it just kind of grew. You know, people ask me, you know, so how did I devise this plan? I really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I had no plan. I just right. I went where the numbers were, you know. If if I posted an excerpt that, you know, 200 people looked at, maybe I can put that in a book for my own satisfaction, but it wouldn't necessarily be an attention getter, you know. Right. But the Misfit stuff and the Prong stuff and later the Killing Joke stuff um, did really well. And that sort of, you know, encouraged me to give this a go. Um, you know, five years later, I'm still writing the damn albums book, <laughs> which is, you know, probably going to be a 600-page encyclopedia when it's done. But along the right. way, I've been able to kind of test market things and try to see what works and what doesn't. So when the albums book comes out, it will be, in my opinion, my definitive work on the subject of music. So that's why it's okay. taking so long, because this will be the end result of all these years of trial and error. Right. Yeah, and and it's funny that you mentioned that, that this book will take you so long to complete when you see a lot of these books that are that are released where they give you the, you know, top hundred albums of a certain genre or, or whatever and you look at it and it's like, Okay, this is the same shit we've seen in, you know, fifty thousand other polls, you know, give me something, you know, new to to grasp onto or 
you know, as you said, something to give a second listen to that's really going to make a difference and open my eyes and really want to check out an album or check out a group. Right, exactly. A lot of these compilation books, in my opinion, are utter shit, which is why I decided to devote the last five years of my life to this project. Because I'm 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 an avid music book reader, and I wanted to write the book that I would want to buy the most. Right. You know, so I'm coming at this as a fan of this work. You know, you, you don't put Throbbing Gristle, Swans, Aerosmith, and Thin Lizzy in the same book unless you're absolutely passionate about what you're writing about. Right. So I hope, uh, I hope that continues to translate to people. And I think it has. I think people realize I'm not coming at this to become a media mogul. I'm coming at this as a fan who loves what yeah. he does and, and, and loves to write and is putting this stuff out. So in some cases, there's a record of these albums existing. Yeah, and and that's that's another important you know piece there with the way that the industry is now. There are so many things that are maybe panned or you know passed off so quickly because of you know how much stuff is out there. It's almost you know impossible for people to listen to absolutely everything. And if you're being spoon fed again, all these shit lists all the time you're not going to take the time to sit there and as a fan and go you know oh you know and a lost forgotten album by you know killing joke or prong or the swans as as you've mentioned which i think are every bit as important or maybe even more important than some of the more popular albums because uh, in a lot of instances they've I think transcended and influenced them. Uh, some of the more popular albums. Perfect example, and I always bring this up when I play something off of uh, "Vulgar Display of Power" by Pantera. I think that album has prong written all over it. A lot of the different um, things that Dimebag Daryl is doing, uh, especially with the rhythm guitar playing, sounds a lot like uh, what Tommy Victor was doing with the earlier prong albums. Oh, sure, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that begged to differ album and that particular sound. Um, you can hear that everywhere. Uh, yeah. From, you know, bands like Helmet, who were pretty much contemporaries of Prong in the uh, early to mid-90s, up through Pantera, you know, to some of that chugga-chugga stuff you hear now with uh, yeah. stuff like Fear Factory and even later Ministry, who, of course, Tommy Victor uh, was a member of. Out of both of these groups, out of Prong and Misfits, which book was more difficult for you to put together? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I think I got more flack from Prong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in all, in all fairness, uh, you know, Mike Kirkland, the original bass player from Prong, is is a great person and. He helped design the cover for the limited edition uh, release of that book. Uh, you know, Troy Gregory is a, a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, Troy, of course, replaced Mike in Prong. Um, right. Ted Parsons I still keep in touch with on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Tommy Victor, very, very talented guy. Um, hard to deal with at times. And, and okay. that's sort of where my comment went from. But, uh, I mean... Tom is a fucking extraordinary musician, and, you know, I will very happily support, publicize, 
and buy every single note that guy commits to disc or MP, right. whatever it might be. Um, love the guy. Love the guy's work. Um, very intense personality, but it, it's really a slight push in the prong direction in that answer because really they were both kind of easy. You know, I was in the undead for 10 years with Bobby Steele, who was in the Misfits. I grew up with Jerry and Doyle. I mean, I've known those guys since I was a kid. So part of that Misfits book was really sort of a diary of my experiences with those guys. So that was kind of an easy one to put together. And, and as I said, it wasn't really intended to be a book. It was a book chapter that sort of took on its own life. And then the right. song book is, is the interviews I conducted um, for the album's book. Um, you know, and I want to be clear, I'm not being particularly negative about Tommy. I'm just saying that if I had any, any kind of resistance um, from anyone from both of those books, it, it was from Tommy. Um, but that's, you know, that's the personality that he has that perhaps creates such powerful music because it comes from a point of um, agitation, I guess you can say. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's, um, uh, he's someone that I've tried to um, interview on several occasions, and similar to what I mentioned when we first started talking, um, I've gotten yes, 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 and then the date that we're supposed to hook up, he was nowhere to be found. Uh, then not hear anything back from the publicist for about two months. Then all of a sudden hear again that they're interested, and then not hear anything for six months. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, so. I don't, I don't know uh, about that. All I can really speak to is, is my experience. And, yeah. and Tommy was pretty much there from the beginning. You know, he obviously contributed to it because his quotes are in there. Um, mm -hmm. And I've talked to Tommy on the phone and done the email thing. You know, on on several occasions, especially back in the day, meaning you know 2005, 2006. Um, but I know he wasn't happy with some of the comments that were said by the others in the book, and he has kind of trashed it in the press. So <laughs> that really kind of inspired my answer there. Um, I don't know Tommy. I, I know Tommy the least out of okay. everybody I've talked to from that camp for this book. So I don't know him enough to p make a judgment call. But, right. you know, he, 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 he does come from a point of aggression. I think I can very confidently say that because I've seen it. I've seen it in print with respect to my work. So uh, <laughs> my response is based on that, really. Yeah. And, and it's interesting with what you just mentioned because obviously if you're listening to a story from the outside – there's always going to be, you know, the, the two sides to that coin, two sides to that story where everyone's going to tell their side of it. Oh, you know, as yeah. as you're saying, if you don't know the exact, you know, ins and outs, it's sort of difficult to, you know, cast a judgment and, you know, have a be all end all opinion on something if maybe you don't know exactly you know, 100% what went on on both sides. Well, you know, so. that, that's it. I mean, you know, it's difficult for me at times because speaking for myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a working class guy. I, I do this book stuff. I do music, plus I do work in another industry. And sometimes I can't put myself in musician mode or, you know, um, public relations mode to deal with somebody who might be an undead fan 
or to deal with somebody who might be in the pig face or electric Frankenstein or anything else I've done. And I look right. back at some of the exchanges I've had with people and I think, my God, I was a fucking dick to this person. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I, I have my human struggles with that as well. So I'm not going to judge the guy on, you know, perhaps he had a bad day talking to somebody. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, like I said, you know, every note that guy's put out, I own. And, you know, until they put that guy out into a box, I'm going to keep buying whatever the guy happens to put out there. So right. uh, behind sight, you know, maybe I look back at it and say, oh, maybe he had a bad day or maybe he yeah. was pissed off at somebody else in a book. It might not have had anything to do with me. So, you know, there's that reality as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that kind of, you know, puts the lid on that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um the book you've just released, Satan to Sabbath, tell us a little bit about that book. Okay, well, as I said earlier, as I've been going through this process of doing this, this larger albums book project, you know, I, I, things have sort of come up and ideas have manifested. And, you know, with the way life is, I'd like to say, okay, in two years' time, the albums book will be out, but... You know, we, we can't predict where life is going to take any any one of us, right? right? So if an idea strikes me, I have to get it out there. So I decided to put together all of the hard rock-related interviews, or at least 95% of them, into one standalone collection. So it's a representation of a genre. Um, plus I found some older interviews I had done prior to 05 that were on the set sort of just gathering dust. You know, perhaps they were, you know, a freelance assignment I took. I did the interview. The publisher decided not to run it because the band wasn't big enough or something. You know, sometimes I did stuff on spec, too, and said, hey, I have an interview with, um, you know, uh, Thomas Fisher from Celtic Frost. Do you want it? No. Okay. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> I had some of those things around, so I put it all together. Uh, the book has, uh, I believe, 16 interviews, and that spans the years 2000 through 2009. It includes uh, all of the interviews that I released as the Sabbath Interviews mini-book. It includes uh, a very good chunk of the Killing Joke mini-book as well as the Prong mini-book, because um, some of those smaller editions... Uh, you can't get anymore, with the exception of the prong one. So right. for anybody who has sort of followed this process of mine uh, and, uh, and want to get, you know, as much of a complete picture as far as my metal interviews, um, they can check out this book. It's a soft cover and hard cover edition. You can get that through my website, which is gaustenbooks.com, which is G-A-U-S-T-E-N-B-O-O-K-S. Com. Most of these interviews then were either conducted in person or over the phone, or were there any written interviews that uh, you included in there as well? Uh, it kind of runs the gamut. Uh, the majority of them were over the phone just because of logistical issues. Um, some were written. The interview with Midjor uh, from Finn Lizzy was done over email because we just couldn't figure out a time to talk on the phone. <laughs> you know, I'd call him, he wouldn't be around, he'd call me, you know, seven hours later, and 
<laughs> we just couldn't couldn't work it out. So I said, you know what, just do it over email, and if I have any other questions, we'll you know deal with it that way. Uh, see, now you got me thinking. Um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, most of them were done over the phone. I'm trying to think of uh, the Richie Stotts interview, uh, Richie Stotts from the Plasmatics. I actually did that one in the basement of CBGB's. Uh, wow, no kidding. Yeah, back in 2002, it was just us at CBGB's. Huh. It was really cool. And uh, that interview is actually an excerpt of this like mammoth four-hour interview we did one afternoon. And uh, it was really crazy because we got there very early, and the bartender's like, hey, Richie, just go downstairs. It's nice and quiet. So we go downstairs, and it's totally empty. We had a whole, whole place to ourselves. Uh, we're done with the interview. We walk upstairs, and CB's is packed, and uh, 247 spies are playing on stage. <laughs> so it's right. kind of like walking into two different worlds doing that interview. Um, but that one was done in person. I think, you know... Uh, the, the trick in interviewing people over the phone is you obviously don't have that personal visual of, of you know, if you're getting tired, if they're straying away, if they're very, very yeah. excited. Um, so there's certainly a science doing interviews over the phone or, or over email because email you have no <laughs> no real indication. Unless they say, go fuck yourself, then you pretty much know what they want to say. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, the Richie one was really good. Um, Alan Tecchio from Hades I did in person. We did that over dinner um, at, a, at a sports bar in Jersey somewhere. <laughs> Don't even remember where that was now. But it was someplace Alan, Alan recommended. And uh, that was a really good time. Uh, trying to think now, going through the list here. Bill Ward was over the phone. Um, Eric Singer. Eric Singer, that's an interesting story. You want to hear my Eric Singer story? Go ahead. <laughs> well, I get in touch with Eric's people because Eric really played into a lot of the other albums I wanted to do. He played drums on Bill Ward's solo album. He also obviously was in Sabbath prior to Kiss. So he had a lot of insight into you know, Sabbath as an entity and, of course, Bill Ward. So I thought he'd be a wonderful person to interview to sort of color you know, the story I was trying to tell about Bill Ward's solo stuff. Right. So I, I get, I, I find a good contact for Eric, and I, I, I contact that person, explain what I'm doing, and that afternoon I get an email from Eric saying, hi, you know, I'm Eric Singer. I would love to do this project. I will call you when I get back from the tour. I guess he was with Kiss at the time. No real indication. I'm thinking a couple weeks, right? Maybe. <laughs> few days, you know. That night, if I, if I remember correctly, that night, it was like midnight. I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I had, I had to work the next day. So I had just about gotten to the point where I was drifting off <laughs> at who calls my cell phone but Eric Singer, um, who says something to the effect of, I'm, I'm back from tour and I'm wired. Can we do this now? <laughs> and I said, sure. Can you call back in five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> so um, within that five minutes, I run to the kitchen. I brew, you know, two big cups of, you know, uh, cups of coffee, the whole thing. So I, I'm ready to go. So he calls back, and we had a wonderful interview. Um, I think we spoke for like well over two hours. And Eric's Eric's a really cool guy, and Eric is very supportive of of Gaston books and the things I do. And I want to definitely give a plug to Eric Singer. Um, 
who does some really good stuff with his side project, um, the Eric Singer project. Keep an eye out for that stuff. Um, right. You know, so Eric and I talked for a couple hours, and then you know, nature started taking over. <laughs> I, I drank, you know, two pots of coffee or whatever it was. So I'm kind of like doing the squirm while I'm recording this interview. And I had like this split screen in my head. The, the first half is thinking, this is really cool. Like I saw Kiss play the Meadowlands in 1992 on the Revenge Tour, you know. And right. Eric Singer from Badlands, you know, I'm a big fan. Yeah. So this is really wild. And then the other half of my brain is thinking, you know, I, I really wish I could just end this so I can go take a leak. <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, the long and short of it is Eric's a wonderful guy. He has uh, not only endorsed uh, From Satan to Sabbath, publicized it on his website, but he's also promoted my radio show, which is Glorious Noise. Um, and he wrote an exclusive statement for my Gary Moore tribute episode, which uh, is an episode I'm very, very proud of. So I'm very, uh, you know, humbled to have Eric's uh, support. I'm a huge Kiss fan. I think he brings uh, a great level of energy, professionalism, and joy to the current incarnation of Kiss. And I certainly wish Eric nothing but the absolute best uh, success in the world. But yeah, I really had to take a leap bad. I guess that's the most of that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually interviewed um, Michael Kiska um, from Halloween fame right. um, around Christmas. And we spoke for four hours, and he ended the interview. He said, look, I just finished drinking... Uh, you know, uh, almost a gallon of water, he told me, and I really have to take a leak, so uh, <laughs> we'll talk some other time. Um, with regards to Eric, I actually got to meet Eric once at a KISS convention in Teaneck years ago, and he uh, was great when I got to speak to him, and um, I'm in the same boat as, as you are. Big uh, fan of that Badlands album that he played on. Sure. Um, and... Fitting that he sent something along uh, regarding that Gary Moore episode because he obviously played with Gary Moore as well. Yeah, yeah. Eric's Eric's just awesome all around. You know, with him, what you see is what you get. You know, you, yeah. you talk to some people and you know you're not speaking to them; you're speaking to their uh, alter ego, their, <laughs> right, or their representative. You know, it's like when you first start dating somebody, you're not really dating them; you're dating their representative. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not like that with Eric. I mean, um, yeah. you know, I've run into him on a few occasions, and I used to go see him play. When I lived in uh, California, he was, uh, I guess, you know, Kiss was on a break, and he was doing shows at these little clubs uh, with Union, which is right. Kewix band. You know, so I mean, I saw Eric play in front of 100 people, and then I would go see him play in front of 10,000. And I think he approaches it the same way, regardless of the size of the crowd, you know. And that's very telling because I see a lot of these musicians like Eric, like Bob Daisley, like Bill Ward, who've been around, you know, 30, 30, 40 years in some of their cases. And I think they've been able to survive because they haven't fallen victim to those trappings. You know, they're yeah. very grounded in who they are. And you really have to be because I've known plenty of musicians who get that tiny little taste of freedom and then the bottom falls out, they lose their deal, they may have picked up a drug habit along the way, 
and they sort of disappear into the background while these guys are still very much active in the business. So I think there's a very important lesson to learn there. Yeah, I agree. With regards to, uh, now, now that we're talking about Kiss a little here, um, with regards to Eric, where would you stack him up uh, with the three drummers or the three classic drummers in Kiss? Obviously, there have been people that have played on the albums like Anton Fig and uh, Kevin Hart, I think, was a guy that played on Psycho Circus. I don't Kevin remember Valentine. his exact. Kevin Valentine. Valentine. Okay, Hart Valentine. Sorry. Close. <laughs> But uh, out of Eric Carr, Eric Singer, and Peter Chris, um, if, as far as your opinion is concerned, where would you rank each of them? Oh, Christ. That's a tough question. I mean, look, Peter Chris helped define the Kiss sound. Right. And nobody plays those songs like Peter Chris. Right. Um, so he has to be ranked pretty high. Although I think his playing has certainly changed, to put it mildly, over the yes, <laughs> um, you know he was the one who shaped that sound. Eric Carr, great drummer. I think he was grossly underutilized in the '80s. I right. think you know they they used drum machines in some of those cases, as I recall. Hot in the Shade, I believe, was all drum machines or mostly drum machines. So '80s production kind of robbed Eric of, I think, making any kind of real statement that would inspire me to go, okay, well, he's in the running. Um, right. With the exception of Creatures of the Night, which is a brilliant fucking album, and there's some great yeah. coming on that record. Eric, you see, this is tough, because it's like, you know, Eric was in Black Sabbath, too, right? Mm-hmm. And he replaced Bill Ward. Now, Bill Ward is the definitive drummer in Black Sabbath, because he has such a unique sound. Now, could Bill yeah. Ward play in Badlands or Kiss? Fuck no, because Bill has a very distinct style, which is only mm-hmm. meant to be played with those three other guys, right? Eric's a, a journeyman, or was a journeyman for a long time, so his greatest talent is adapting his playing to whatever scenario he happens to be in at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So he's a better drummer in the sense that he can kind of put himself into different situations. But in the same way that Bill Ward is the definitive Black Sabbath drummer, I think Peter Chris, in his prime, was mm-hmm. the definitive Kiss drummer. So I know that's not a direct answer, but it's the only answer I can give because from a technical standpoint, there's no question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Eric Singer blows Bill Ward and Peter Chris off the stage. But I think Eric yeah. would probably agree, too, that those two guys are the definitive drummers for that band. Now, mm-hmm. would KISS have done Sonic Boom without Eric Singer? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he brings, uh, like I said, the level of professionalism, skill, and just exuberance that is needed to carry a band fronted by two 60-year-olds. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I can't give you a straight answer to that, but I would have to say that of the three... I prefer Peter Chris in Kiss, but I think Eric's the best drummer out of the three. How's that? Right. <laughs> no, I, I I agree with everything you said, and I think one of the most disheartening situations for me of seeing anyone live was seeing uh, was the farewell tour back in 2000 now, so 11 years ago, um, with Peter Chris playing and 
as you alluded to, his playing was nowhere near, you know, what you heard on the albums or on, you know, something like uh, Alive or Alive 2 or any of the bootlegs that have been around there for years. You know, that sort of swagger that he brought to his playing was, you know, gone. And it was uh, sort of sad. And, And I agree with, you know, exactly what you said. I've seen the band with, you know, Eric Singer and with Peter Chris, there's no doubt in my mind who, you know, the the right man for the job is at this point in time. So Yeah, I, uh, I agree. And, uh, and yes, Creatures of the Night is probably my favorite Kiss album um, because of that drum sound. Being a drummer myself, that is the, in my opinion, the best sound for a, um, a, a drum sound off of any album. Uh, I'll take that over any Bonham sound or, or anything else that, you know, people have always held up there in, in great regards. The, just how powerful and aggressive the drums sound on that album. Yeah. I think that was a, you know, was a once-in-a-lifetime um, experience where they captured the perfect sound, and that really put that album over the top. And and hearing a lot of the the remixes, like on Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits, and, and everything else of Say I Love It Loud after that, just would completely kill the song because, you know, the essence of that, of that song and that album is that sound that they captured with Eric. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I agree. That's a fantastic album. Um, certainly the heaviest Kiss album, with the exception of Carnival of Souls. Uh, right. Really good production, um, great playing on that album. Uh, what's that song? Uh, Saint and Sinner. Right. Mm-hmm. Some great drumming on, great music arrangement on that song. Uh, Danger is a great song. We're trying to think. I still love you is one of my favorite Paul Stanley vocal performances, bar none. Um, pound for pound, song for song. It's a quality Kiss record, which you can't yeah. really say for all of them. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, interestingly enough, you named two songs that uh, Eric Carr also played bass on. So Yeah, well, there you go. Well, Eric, again, great musician. Like I said, I think he was grossly underutilized in that band. Um, I think he had many talents that only diehard Kiss fans know about, whether it be his right. singing talents or his solo recordings he had done prior to his death. Um, we're talking about an immensely talented man here. Um and, uh, you know, unfortunately, history kind of writes him as the, the guy who replaced Peter Chris, but I think he brought much more to that band. Yeah. Or could have brought more to that band had they maybe, uh, you know, loosened the chains a bit. But that was 80s production, too. I mean, all those drums yep. in the 80s sucked. <laughs> <laughs> all those records, all those hard rock albums, the drums just sucked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of fell victim to that. Yeah, and unfortunately there was, um, I guess a few years back, I started hearing certain bands bringing a lot of the snare sound that was used in the 80s back again. And I was thinking, wow, this didn't work then. Why is any producer, you know, thinking about bringing in this, you know, snare sound with this ridiculous amount of reverb on it? And, and I don't know, it just drove me nuts. You know, any song that I heard with that, you know, sound was an instant skip. You know, once I heard two notes off of that snare drum, I said, forget it. You know, I'm not, I'm just going to hate this song just because of that, 
you know, the snare sound. I'd, I'd almost prefer, you know, Lars Ulrich's uh, coffee can snare to <laughs> hearing that again. So, Well, yeah, I mean, St. Anger, you know, we're going to go into St. Anger territory here. Uh, <laughs> that's a punk rock album in my mind. What a punk rock thing to do. you got the most, like, successful, masterfully produced band in the universe doing a fucking punk rock garage album. <laughs> in spirit, you know what I mean? And I think right. um, that's what people missed when, when Metallica was coming out during that time saying, listen, we're going back to our roots as like an old school thing. I think people misinterpreted that as they're going to sound like Kill 'em All. Uh, yeah. You can't sound like Kill 'em All because Kill 'em All was Kill 'em All. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't reproduce that. But I think the spirit and just the fuck it nature of that album. Um, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of it per se musically, but the spirit behind it, I really admire because they came out totally out of left field trying to do something different. And that's rare of any band of that stature to make a 360 and go, you know what, we're just going to fuck convention entirely. <laughs> so more power to them for making that album. Yeah, and, and you hit on a really good point there, and I have this conversation all the time. A lot of people sort of compare bands and musicians to superheroes you know it's it's like a comic book that never changes you know regardless of what happens you know spider-man still has the same costume or or whatever people don't realize that kill them all happened because four guys had a specific mindset well you speak to dave mustaine five guys had a specific (laughs) mindset and you know they were 17 18 years old hungry wanted to make it and there's no way that a guy with, you know, 10 houses around the world, infinite amount of money, Ferraris, this, that, and the other thing, is going to write the same type of album just because their mindset, their life is completely different, you right. know? Right, right. Because you're being more dishonest if you don't acknowledge <laughs> those differences, you know? Um, you know, it's, if you're the angry band and you're not feeling anger, not that that sums up Metallica, but as an example, you know, if you're not being true to what your life experience is, you know, you're a fucking circus act, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, and I think, I think music should always come from a different place. Yeah. And there are those bands that just mechanically put out music, and I will never buy stuff from that. I, I prefer listening to bands who, who come from the dirt, you know, who obviously come from a point of experience in the music, you know. Um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne could not have put out Blizzard of Oz without the previous 10 years of Black Sabbath. Right. You know, and all the things he went through. Bill Ward could not have put out that beautiful solo album he did in 89 along the way without having been homeless. Mm-hmm. So I think your life does inspire where you go. Um, anybody who denies that or tries to be, you know, I'm you know, this or whatever, and they're not living that, that life, I think they're making the sound of music. Yeah. I, I have to agree. I, I remember years ago hearing um, Dee Snyder talk about why, you know, Twisted Sister fell apart, and, you know, one of his reasons uh, for not being interested in the band anymore was along the lines of uh, what we just mentioned. He said, you know, I had, at the time, you know, a mansion... I don't know how many cars, had three kids. You know, life was good. He says, you know, I couldn't write lyrics about 
rebellion or things sucking anymore because they really didn't, <laughs> you know. So he felt he would have been living a lie if he would if he were to continue writing lyrics about you know how crappy things were, or, you know, rebelling against the system when at that time the system was was working fine for him. Right, right, right. Now if he looks towards music as a release to have a good time to sing those songs, that's great. You know, yeah. but to make a career out of it when they're not feeling it, it has to come from some place within, you know, and that's that stuff you can't define, you know, and that's what keeps music journalists and radio show hosts in business because we search for that explanation. <laughs> you know, that's why I write books. I want right. to find out, you know, how a band goes from point A to point B. And sometimes you just can't define it. You just can't define I know within myself I can't define the things that really drive me. It's that passion, it's that really cool stuff that you just feel, and you have mm -hmm. to feel, and that's the most important thing, really. I think people get too clinical sometimes analyzing music. You know, music is to be felt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? um, music is that knee-jerk, you know, beads of sweat on the forehead. Oh, my God, I'm seeing something that's going to change my fucking life forever. That's what music <laughs> is. You know, it's not clinical and... You know, I've never read a... I, I used to know how to read music when I was a kid. I can't read a single note of it anymore. I just forgot it. You know, I was off mm -hmm. on my journey putting out, you know, 30-plus records or probably 50, 50-plus 50 records more accurately. You know, <laughs> you just go for it. You know, on your right. market, set, go. And I think that's what differentiates those who can and those who cannot. Gotcha. And speaking of that, let's touch on some of the music that uh, that you've recorded and played on over the years so that again just like the books people can go out there and you know find out what you played on and if they like any of it go out and and buy it and help support Joel in any little way that you can that's right don't so, download it don't download it unless it's on iTunes <laughs> <laughs> um, I found it very interesting that um, you know, for so long there was nothing uh, new from the Misfits, and then all of a sudden, up on your MySpace page, I remember seeing the press release go out that there were these songs that you had recorded with the band um, that were all of a sudden coming out, and I'm sure that also helped draw people to your site and the different things that you had written up about the Misfits. Um, you mentioned a little earlier on that you had known Jerry and Doyle uh, essentially since you were a kid. How does that go from knowing them since you were a kid to actually playing with them in a version of the band? Um, well, just, just to kind of back up, um, those weren't officially released songs right. as official Misfits recordings. Those were rehearsal demos that were recorded in uh, 1995. Um, make a long story short, because um, I, I get asked this question a lot. Uh, basically, I was uh, booking hall shows in New Jersey at the time. And the shows I was putting together were doing pretty well. We had a, like a VFW hall we were doing stuff at, and we had like, you know, 300 plus kids a night, and it was doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being kind of cheeky and, and rambunctious, I thought it would be a really sweet idea to have the Misfits play at this hall I was booking shows at. Uh, right. Because Jerry and Doyle lived in the area, and they were kind of like right. local legends, you know. People would have their Misfits sightings and shit. 
<laughs> and I didn't know they were getting back together. I had never met those guys, but I had a friend, um, this really, really great guy named Mike Waller, who uh, used to be Dolores Guitar Tech at this music store in town. And I kind of explained to him what I was doing, because he had a band and they had played some shows I put on, and you know he knew what I was doing. He said, well, why don't you give Jerry a call, see what he has to say. Um, so he gave me Jerry's number. I call up Jerry, and uh, as soon as he picks up the phone, I hear this really loud, booming voice. Hello! You know, Jerry doesn't talk, he yells. <laughs> you know, and I kind of explained to him who I was when I was calling, and he's like, well, I don't have a drummer in this new band, I'm, you know, this new version of the Misfits we have going on. And I said, well, I'm a drummer. He says, oh, really? Well, what do you know? I said, well, I know every song you've ever done. I didn't know any songs, you know. <laughs> but I was seven. I was 17 years old, you know. I mean, I had the Misfits records. I just hadn't really, you know, listened to them intently with the purpose of playing them. You know, so uh, he said, why don't you come for an audition? And I remember I skipped school the next day and learned probably like 30 songs, you know. Uh, right. Went up there and jammed with, um, with Jerry and Doyle. And uh sounded really good. I was 17. You know, Jerry was 35 at the time, maybe a little older. I think Doyle was like 30. So it wasn't going to work in terms of ages. Uh, right. You know, I was, I was just a little bit too young. I think when Michael Graves joined, he was 19. But I kind of missed the cutoff. You know what I mean? I was still in high school. <laughs> right. That whole thing. And uh, they said, you know, look, you know, we, we kind of have another drummer who's, in the wings here, and he's helping us engineer vocal demos because they were auditioning singers. That was their main priority. And the guy they had running the board was Dr. Chud, uh, right. Dave Calabri, who ended up playing with them for several years. So while he was recording these vocal auditions, they needed somebody to keep the beat because Chud was busy doing that, you know, recording these tapes. Because everybody who auditioned on vocals got a cassette of them auditioning. As a thank you. Mm -hmm. So even though most of them were fucking awful, <laughs> you know, they still got this tape, you know. Hey, thanks a lot. Right. Get the fuck out, you know. <laughs> and um, so they needed someone to kind of play the songs while Chud was busy. So I, that's what I did. I went up there to where they rehearsed like two or three times a week for about four or, six, four or five, six months. I was a senior in high school at the time. And I was actually there when Michael Graves auditioned for the first time and that was kind of cool to see that whole thing take shape. And uh, what ended up happening was all these tapes that these guys had, of course, ended up being bootlegged and distributed and, and put out everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, I'm drumming on quite a few of these tapes. So fast forward many years, um, like 10 years, I get an email from a friend of mine who came across um, probably the most complete recording of any rehearsal I did with them. It was from February of 95, 11 songs, and he sent me a CD of it, and it was kind of nice to listen back. You know, like, holy shit, it's me. I wasn't half bad, you know, keeping up with these guys. You know, it was all, all you hear is Doyle, basically. I mean, these aren't, you know, expert recorded studio tracks or anything. They're just, you know, here's an A-track recording, go, you know. So I figured, well, I've got these things. Um, I wanted to build a MySpace page to kind of promote my drumming stuff anyway because I was looking for freelance gigs at the time. So I figured, well, well fuck it. I'll put it up there. 
<laughs> you know, I have them. They're just gathering up dust. I mean, people might be interested, and they might find out more about the book that way. And I kind of, you know, linked the two together, like, hey, here's me playing, and if you want to read about it, check out this book, you know. Right. And uh, it went really well. I mean, uh, like 10,000 hits in one day or something, you know. <laughs> it was wow. pretty crazy. And, you know, but I don't, I don't profess that these are Misfits recordings in any way, shape, or form. I was never in the Misfits. Um, some people in the press sort of mischaracterize that. I want to be very clear. It's never meant right. for the band. I just happened to be there playing drums with them, filling in. You know, they had Shud pretty much there, but they needed somebody who can keep the beat and who was able to do, you know, 30 songs at a clip. And it made me a much better drummer. I mean, playing those fucking songs, doing like the Earth AD stuff, <laughs> get it, <laughs> you know? Um so it was, it was a lot of fun, and it was kind of cool to refer back to that 10-plus years later and go, wow, that was something I did. You know, it was only when I started doing the book stuff, I actually sort of did stock of my past, because I've always been forward-thinking. I do things, and I'm on to the next thing. You know, when we finish this interview, I'm going to work on my next book, which is coming out in about six months. Um, you know, so I'm always sort of looking ahead. So when I started looking at ways of getting my face in the radar, so to speak, I went, wow, I actually have done some pretty cool stuff. Let's kind of right. put it together and present it, you know, as as another way to get through the door, perhaps. Um, so that's really all that was. It was just a way to kind of put it up there because it was just sitting in my room. Mm-hmm. Thinking, well, I've heard it. <laughs> you know, it's not doing me any good. I, I have it here. Let's share it with other people. And that led right. to, you know, those tracks getting out there. So it was kind of funny. Have you heard anything from, say, Jerry or Doyle uh, about these versions of the songs, or have you never come in contact with them regarding uh, what you put up on the MySpace? Um, no, actually, I saw Jerry um, a few months ago. I was down in Las Vegas for uh, for a work thing. I just happened to be in town at a, at a something else I do for my nine to five. I just happened to see the Misfits were playing um, the Hard Rock Cafe. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm still kind of in touch with Michael Graves. I still hear from him once in a while. I still hear from Chud once in a while. Um, haven't talked to Doyle in a bit. Keeping sporadic touch with Bobby Steele as well. So I'm kind of like still in that circle, so to speak. But life has moved on. Right. So I hadn't seen Jerry for many years. I happened to, you know, go to the show and see the new lineup, and he actually had. Um, this guy goat playing drums who was in electric frankenstein who i replaced <laughs> in electric <laughs> frankenstein so it was kind of like a weird small world thing and right. um i waited until jerry signed everything and uh said hey do you remember me and he kind of paused for a minute because i look a little bit different than i did you know 17 years ago and i'm like hey it's joel and hey how you doing we we, we spent the, the, the night talking about my stepson you know and he signed uh, Misfits bandana for him. He's nine years old, my stepson. Mm-hmm. We just talked a bit about family, and you know that's what's most important to me at this point in life, and I'm sure it's important to him as well. I know he's uh, he has uh, two kids, and I think he has a third kid now who's kind of young. You know, so it's more about just life at this point, not about songs and business. And, <laughs> you know, but no, he didn't mention it. You know, I would expect they're aware of it, but it's not like I said, it's not supposed to be representative of anything except right. I happen to be jamming with these guys you know it's not you know it's not for sale 
you know, you can't even download it off of uh, the MySpace page. I just put it up there as a reference point. You know, it was a little, right. you know, a little asterisk to the story. Oh, by the way, this book comes with a soundtrack now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but that was really, yeah, it was really good to see him again. I haven't, you know, like I said I haven't talked to Jerry um, for a few years. You know, probably about eight or nine years, I think. Um, last time I'd seen him previously was in L.A. They had played out um, at the Key Club. So mm -hmm. a bit. But every time I see Jerry, it's great. You know, it's right back to 1995 when I was 17. I was <laughs> out at his house having spaghetti dinner. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I love Jerry. You know, I, I love what he's done with the band. I, I deeply respect his keen eye for marketing and keeping that name going. Um, mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, he, he'll probably do it until they have to carry him off stage. And I look forward <laughs> to everything he does until that point. Yeah, I got to meet him as well at one point and was nothing but nice to me. So I have nothing bad to say about him. And um, uh, I actually wanted to um, ask about your experience with them because I've actually played off and on with a, a Misfits tribute band. So um, uh, it's it's always fun to talk about the Misfits. Cool, so. right on, right on. You know, it's funny. I um, I have to be reminded of those demo tracks because... <laughs> I don't think I've done an interview in the past, you know, three years where people haven't brought it up, and that's great, you know. But it seems like it was so long ago, and you know, right. my intent for putting it up there wasn't like, you know, just like, hey, maybe this is another chance to, you know, let people know I'm writing this book or whatever. You know, it wasn't, you know, I'm I'm releasing Misfit songs when I was in the band, <laughs> you know. Right. And people people were very curious about that. It was only when I started getting questions about it. That I realized, like, wow, this this was actually a pretty cool experience, you know, and I'm able to have that, you know, and, and a lot of people wouldn't have that kind of experience, and it's only through hindsight that I realized that, you know, it, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely had to uh, check out what you did on some of the earlier songs because uh, for those that aren't uh, in the know of exactly how those songs are structured. From a drumming standpoint, they're all over the place where, <laughs> you know, where, where you start to listen to them and and you start to learn the songs and and there's no like format or convention to them whatsoever. And that's what makes them so cool at the same time is that, you know, the song can start out with, you know, playing half beats and then it's four four towards the end you know and it's oh yeah yeah and they also every drummer they ever had officially in the band and every real misfits drummer was right. completely different stylistically yeah. um you had you know manny martinez who was basically a jazz guy um mr jim who's kind of a jazz guy too in a sense more yeah. like a traditional rock guy joey image who was just all symbols and snare uh yeah. googie who was <laughs> A fucking mess. <laughs> and then he had Robo, who, you know, definitely has his own very characteristic style. And, and Chud as well. And, and now they have yeah. Goat, and Goat has his own vibe as well. So it's really funny because they've had such a diverse, uh, you know, list of drummers with, with styles that shouldn't really mesh well with their sound, but actually define their sound because, yeah. you know, every drummer brought something new to that table. Yeah, similar to what you mentioned with Peter Chris, 
with Kiss and how he injected them with a different sound to help define them. A lot of these drummers did the same things, doing things that were atypical for the style of music that they were playing and at the same time helped, you know, define what the Misfits were and, and what their music became. Right, absolutely. Could not agree more. Here's one question or one thing that I always um, get into, into quasi-arguments with people over. Do you think that Earth AD was the start of hardcore music? Um, I've heard more than one person say this, and the argument is usually, no, 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 Black Flag started it or Bad Brain started it, but no one seems to want to cop to the fact that that album had a lot to do with what hardcore became. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, well, the Bad Brains, um, well, okay, no, Earth AD did not start hardcore. Okay. Um, no way. No, no way in hell. Um, Bad Brains colored it. I think, I think it was like, well, who started punk? It's like, well, okay, what, well, what's punk, you know? Is punk the Velvet <laughs> Underground? New York Dolls, or is it the first Ramones record, you know, or is it the Seeds, or the NC5, or the, you know, so, it's hard to say, on which coast did it start, you know, did it start in California, or did it start in, in New York, or did it start in England, which a lot of people who have no idea what they're talking about seem to claim. Right. <laughs> um, same thing with hardcore. Um, you know, I mean, well, I think the Bad Brain, stylistically, the Pay to Come single, um, if mm -hmm. I had to pick a starting point, I would certainly go to that first. Um, although Daryl Jennifer from the Bad Brains would say they weren't hardcore, they were just doing punk, you know. Right. But the speed and the, the speed and the aggression of that was definitely what became hardcore music in the early 80s. But one album that a lot of people seem to forget that was fast as fuck when it first came out, and had absolutely guttural vocals. New Hope for the Wretched by the Plasmatics, which came out in 1980 on Stiff Records. That album predated Damage, Damage by Black Flag, predated Agnostic Front. Actually, a lot of Wendy O's vocals on that first album are very similar to what Roger does in Agnostic Front. They kind of, you know, that's that goes right back to the Plasmatics. So... And that's a band that really kind of pushed the speed. You know, and later on, they became essentially a thrash band with, right. with the Maggots album seven years later. But New Hope for the Wretched was really the first time you had really fast punk rock music over an album. I mean, people can also say The Germs or, or bands like F Word out in California had the speed too. Um, so it's really difficult, but if I had to, if the gun was pointed to my head and said, pick a fucking hardcore album that started it, I'd have to say to pay the cum single by the Bad Brains. Okay. Yeah, the thing I usually hear is either Bad Brains, Black Flag, or Minor Threat. Those are the three that, uh, th that I usually always hear. Well, Black Flag, when they first started, weren't necessarily a fast band. Um, it wasn't until uh, the second Black Flag album, Jealous Again, that they really kind of sped up a bit. And that was after that first wave of, like, germs. Uh, I think Joe's Again came out in 79. So all that kind of germs, F-wordy stuff was already kind of happening. 
you know. Right. So was Jealous again a reaction to that? Possibly. You know, but the first the first Black Flag out uh, EP, the Nervous Breakdown, it's essentially mid tempo when you think about it. <laughs> you know, so so I think uh, Black Flag misses the mark there. Minor threat. I mean, Christ, they were practically second generation. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's only because Jeff Nelson only knew that one beat, but <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That that is uh, that's perfect. That is th- this part of this interview is what I will have to set aside, and every time this argument comes up, <laughs> I'm gonna have to play this over and over again. Yeah, so, and I'm sure and it, I'm sure somebody like my buddy Sal from Electric Frankenstein, who's a big record collector, will go, "Nah, it was this band from 1968." Right? And no, you know. <laughs> But you know, but screw it. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the bad brain plasmatics. That's my final answer, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> as far as music that you've been involved in, what defines you as a musician? What do you feel? Which albums that you played on, or what bands you played with, would define the definitive Joel Gostin as a drummer? Oh Christ, as a drummer, um, nothing. Nothing, because I don't think I've ever been able to really duplicate the live sound to um, what I've been able to put in the studio. Uh, okay. I've never been 100% comfortable as a studio drummer. Um, I find the process very constricting in a lot of ways. Um, I think right. the closest I've ever gotten in the studio was the stuff I did with Electric Frankenstein. Um, that's probably the closest, as well as a band um, I did in L.A. called The Sixth Chamber. Uh, we did a full-length album with uh, Geza X Engineering um, that never came out, but some of those songs were released on compilations. That stuff's pretty close, too. Um, and uh, hopefully the next project I do will be a lot of fun. I'm doing a project um, as yet unnamed, uh, with uh, a few, with a couple of really cool people. Um, one is my friend Dan uh, from Electric Frankenstein, who's okay. also uh, been in bands like Christian Death and Shadow Project. And I've always been a kind of a goth-leaning person, so um, we have a lot of musical language that we share. Uh, right. And Paul Sir Q, who used to go by the name Dim Wanker in the 70s, he was a guitar player in F-Word who was okay. uh, the first band in L.A. to do a punk rock album in 1978. So we're going to be doing kind of a bi-coastal project where we're going to be re-recording some classic F-word songs. Um, Dim's going to be singing and playing guitar, Dan on bass, myself on drums. And I think all three of us are kind of at the point where we're not looking to do music to be anything but guys who do music, you know? Right. There was a point in my life when music, I was managing the bands I was in because I had that personality. <laughs> I always end up managing these things. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, and I, I would be behind my drums, and I would be counting the heads of the people at the club or wondering, you know, how badly we're going to get fucked by the promoter or right. if we're going to have $10 or a whopping $15 to put in the gas tank to get to the next show, you know, <laughs> all those things. So I don't have to worry about that anymore because I don't do bands full-time anymore. So right. anything I do musically at this point is just going to be for pleasure, which is what it should have been all along. 
but it took right. me 20 years, <laughs> you know, to, to understand the importance of that. So I'm really looking forward to the stuff with uh, uh, Paul and Dan and doing some recording with my wife's project, which is an electronic thing called Effection Hate. Um, we're doing a full-length album here at the house. We have a little home studio set up, and we have Martin Atkins playing drums on at least one track. Um, we just put out a single back in December with Paul Barker from Ministry playing bass. Um, we got right. bass stems um, from Paul, and we manipulated them and <laughs> fucked with them to the point where nobody would even know it's him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so, and that's a project, you know, Effection Hate is really when we have the time to do it. You know, we're married, we have family, a kid, bills to pay. So, you know, there's no schedule, there's no label telling us what to do. And right. I'm having more fun now doing less than I ever <laughs> did when I was doing four or five bands at once, worrying about all the logistical shit, you know. <laughs> I mean, because frankly, there, there's no real market for this stuff anymore. You know, the average metal or heavy band sells, Christ, 800 to 1,000 albums. You can't, yeah. you can't survive on that, so don't even think about it. Just do it for the, the, the sheer joy of doing it. So yeah. it took the failure <laughs> of the music industry to make me realize that music can be fun. <laughs> yeah, and that's funny you mention that because bands couldn't make it selling millions of albums, nonetheless the 800 to 1,000 that they're selling now. So. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely terrible. You know, people say, well, you know, you make it up in tour support. Well, have you looked at the price of gas lately? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I had that argument last week. Well, you know, the bands that aren't making any money are the ones that don't tour enough. And I'm thinking, do you know what it costs yeah. to tour around, you know, the U.S. or Europe and... You know what gas costs, and you know you got to pay for hotels or hostels or, or wherever you're <laughs> staying, and hope that your shit doesn't get ripped off at night. You right, know? you have to make sure when the bass player ODs or close to a hospital. <laughs> right. You know all those things. You know when when the acid goes terribly, terribly wrong, and the guy's fingers are melting on stage. At least in his mind, you have to be able <laughs> to direct him to the nearest hospital or you know, caring person who's not going to get you busted at the end of the night. Yeah, I've, I've done this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have a story or two to tell. Oh, so. Christ. Well, maybe one day I'll write my book about doing the book. And, <laughs> and do it. That's what Troy Gregory says. He says, I should do a book about doing the fucking book. Um, because doing with these personalities is so much fun, but it's so challenging because yeah. anybody who's normal would never be in a band. You know, so, <laughs> so you have all these really conflicting stories, and every band has some level of dysfunction, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's colorful people, and that's why I, I have this life, because I'm able to, to see extraordinary people do what they do best. You know, mm -hmm. that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me going to the next book, the next album. I swore off playing music so many times. Here I am doing an album with, with Danny from EF and, and Paul from F-Word in 2011. I would never have imagined that 10 years ago. So it's those kind of things. And you never shut the door completely to anything because you never know what's yeah. going to come through. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned a second ago that you're going, you're going to be working on another book. 
Can you mention anything regarding that book, or you rather keep that under wraps until you're closer to um, finishing the book up? I'll keep it under wraps. Uh, what I will say is people can uh, go to the website for updates, uh, which is, again, Gauston Books, G-A-U-S-T-E-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. Um, MySpace is kind of insignificant now, but you can certainly, uh, if you go to Brave Words, Dot com or blabbermouth.net. Um, they usually update what I'm what I'm doing next. The next thing I'm doing actually is I'm going to be uh, doing a column for a website called Ladder Than War, uh, which is kind of okay. it's, a, it's kind of like a punk rock website. Um, it's run by a guy named John Robb, who's been a, an old school journalist for many years, and and he's doing some really good stuff. And I'm going to be kind of his American representative, I guess you can say. Um, so I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be contributing to some of your future columns at Mars Attacks as well. Um, so I'm kind of out there. If anybody wants to contact me directly, um, they can go to gaustonbooks.com uh, or they can email me at gaustonbooks at gmail.com. Uh, don't expect an immediate response, <laughs> <laughs> but I will respond. I will respond in kind. And... Uh, you know, that's that's pretty much it. I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, I guess people can expect to hear some new music from me in the not-too-distant future. Um, like I said, we're going to be doing some stuff with Martin uh, for the Affection Hate album very, very soon. So, uh, you know, keep an eye out. I'll be around. Cool. And you mentioned briefly that you have a radio show. Where can people go to listen to your radio show? Okay, well, the the most direct link is uh, go to the host website, which is RadioFreeSatan.com. The show is called Glory is Noise. That's G-L-O-R-Y-I-S, noise, three words. And that's a bi-weekly show. Um, I interview uh, musicians, obviously, uh, have specialty episodes. Uh, some of the guests I've had so far, Bob Daisley, uh, Troy Gregory, Martin Atkins was on the show, Jatan Damone from Christian Death. Uh, this week I have Hades, uh, Dan and Alan uh, for a two-hour episode. Doing a Peter Steele tribute on April 4th. I'm um, going to have uh, my good friend Dave Ingram from Bolt Thrower and Benediction in a few weeks. Um, so it's a pretty eclectic mix of musicians. If you go to the show page for the show at RadioFreeSatan.com, there is a link to the Facebook page, which is a very, very long URL, and I can't remember it offhand. Uh, <laughs> right. But if you go there, you'll see a list of all the previous guests. Um, we, ho- we host two episodes at a time on the, on the show page. So check it out. It's been a lot of fun. Um, trying to get some guests lined up I can't announce yet. But let's say if, if you're a fan of uh, classic British heavy metal, uh, you absolutely want to stay tuned to the show around June or July. And that's all I can say about that. Cool. That is very cool. We'll definitely go over and uh, check the shows out. And um, the funny thing about the Facebook, same thing happens with me. I just direct people to the home site. I have a link on there, and <laughs> that's much easier than rattling off a, a long URL that consists of 
I don't know, 15 uh, different uh, uh, alphanumeric uh, characters. So. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a nightmare to do promotion on Facebook, I've discovered. Yeah. So everybody's all about Facebook, Facebook. Well, everybody was all about MySpace, too, three years ago. Look where that got us. So, you know, yeah. you use that stuff sparingly. You know, that's all I can say. <laughs> Absolutely. This is Joel Gosson, Electric Frankenstein, Big Face, The Undead, etc., etc. You are listening to Mars Attacks. listen to the mix of that song you know I know that there's that clean part going on there with the distorted guitars and all but listen to the bass part there um, listen to the way the drums sound the guitar everything else it is very typical for that time period but because that was one of the first albums to sound that way a lot of other bands copied that sound 
and used it, copied that mix. And if I'm not mistaken, Terry Date, I think, produced that. And he also produced, uh, you know, Queensryche and Pantera and, and other bands. And I'm still a firm believer that uh, had Pantera not uh, listened to Prong, a lot of those, you know, uh, songs were there just chugging away on the uh, low E. Uh, they wouldn't be there, you know, if it wasn't for Prong. So uh, a band that is very underrated and, um, you know, glad that Tommy Victor put things back together. Hopefully someday we get to speak to him. Um, hopefully my comments didn't piss anyone off over in that camp, but, uh, you know. Uh, and he's done a lot of great stuff after Prong. You know, Danzig, Ministry, Rob Zombie, uh, he's been all over the place, so. Um, what else? Yeah, and before that, before the interview, we had uh, some Killing Joke, and we started things off with some uh, Misfits, Michael Graves-era Misfits, and for people that say, well, why didn't you play Danzig, and, you know, you talked about Earth AD and whatnot. The reason I did that was because that was the time period when Joel was involved in the band, right before Michael Graves got into the band and he, you know, lays things out and says that he actually wasn't part of the band, that he was just helping them out for the most part. But, you know, how cool, how cool was that story? You know, 17-year-old kid, uh, you know, in high school, you're asked to uh, step in and help uh, the Misfits out while they're trying all these different singers. So uh, just an absolutely great story. And again, I loved listening back to that and just revisiting that conversation that we had when we recorded this episode. So I truly do want to thank uh, Joel. I actually just received the Prong Limited Edition and from Sabbath to Satan. Um, and I look forward to reading them. Actually reading one of uh, Greg Prado's books right now. The uh, When MTV Ruled the World. And a very interesting book. You know, there's a lot of insight there from musicians, their opinions. A lot of stuff from people at the network, some of the VJs and some of the bigwigs at MTV at the time. And it was um, really interesting. And uh, I intend on moving on to Joel's book right after this. Actually got a, a slew of books in the mail in the last two weeks. So, uh, yeah, should be interesting. Should have plenty of reading to do from here till the rest of the year. And I'm not a fast reader at all. So if we do another episode or two of the podcast and and you hear me say that I'm still on the same book, don't be surprised. So um, in any event, go to gostonbooks.com. Check what Joel has to offer. Go to lulu.com. Uh, you can order his books there, and actually you can order Greg Prado's books there as well. And um, that's pretty much it. If you want to send me any comments, the email address is victor at marsattacksradio.com. Also, go to iTunes, leave a comment regarding the podcast. We would definitely appreciate, definitely appreciate it if you left a comment there. And uh, what else? Just go to marsattacksradio.com. And check things out, and uh, you know if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with this podcast, the radio shows, 
the playlist for the radio shows as well and reviews and other things like that. We're we're going to try to get, you know, more reviews taken care of. Things have been pretty hectic the last few months and they'll probably continue to be so, but uh, you know, uh we did a review up there for the Hades DVD which came out and you know, I'd like to do a lot more. It's just a case of, uh, you know, having time to do them. But uh, that is pretty much it. Thanks again for listening. And we're going to leave you off with a track off of the Bill Ward album that um, Joel referenced. And this track actually had a video for it. Ozzy sings on it. And I remember seeing it on MTV years ago during the original Headbangers Ball run. And the name of this track is Bombers Open Bombays. And uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time right here on the Mars Attacks podcast. (laughs) 